Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. And Corey, today we are going to talk about the things of eternity in a in a pretty poignant, pretty uh, specific, uh, concrete way as we talk about what happens to the souls that leave this earth. What do you think about, um, well, let me say this, sure is easy to get us distracted and to lose hope with and become angry with things we see today in our country. Yeah, amen, amen. But... Um in the end, you know, there's a lot of scriptures we've read in the past and a lot of hope, I think, that's we've been given that this might be a difficult time to endure. But uh, I keep trying to keep my head above it and, and remember that he said in his plan that someday he's going to arm people with righteousness and righteousness and truth will sweep the earth like a flood. And uh, if that's in our lifetime or not, I can't say. Well, we left off last time talking about the Holy One of Israel, and we talked about some Hebrew stair-step type writing that goes through why man fell and that we'd all be subject to the devil if the infinite atonement wasn't paid. And as we read through 2 Nephi 6, we've gotten to the point where he's talking about what's going to happen when each person leaves this world and stands before the Holy One of Israel when I read this stuff, Corey, it just, um, I, I think it recenters me. It helps me refocus, um, recenter my life and remember what really matters. Cause it doesn't take a whole lot to get me, um, you know, off center and angry about what's going on right now. And it's like, there's going to come a day when it doesn't matter. None of this matters yeah. when I'm standing before the Holy one of Israel and, as you talked last time about willfully, if I have willfully longed for evilness and sin, that is going to be the bad day of all bad days. Yeah, yeah. But well, on the other hand, <laughs> somehow if I've done what I could to yield my heart to him, that he's mighty to save me at that moment. Amen. Amen. Well, let's just see what the word says because he... He, this is a great a great um, dialogue, or I don't know what, what you would call it, a great exposition of, of what happens to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, last time I was talking, you know, about my friend, and um, he acknowledges that he was created, but that also that there's a lot of, and, and in some ways he's true, there's responsibility for us to grow and learn and use the knowledge we've been given. But the ultimate source of truth is what, Corey? Ultimate source of truth would be just God himself and his word, I would guess. Huh? Yeah. the um, You and I have nothing within us, right, to form truth or to make truth. It, it says it exists independently in its own sphere, the yeah. scriptures say. Yeah. And so our job is to come to a knowledge of the truth, but we can't create truth. We can't make truth. Mm-hmm. It's already there and it exists. And there is a truth in all things. And we have to discover that truth by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and don't you love it when it, it can be in Scripture or maybe not just something in life when what we call the Spirit of God just touches you when you hear something or you read something or you you have a thought and it just rings true and there's this 
harmonious feeling that comes to you that bears record that it's true, you know? And it's just like, that's such a satisfying feeling. And we can only use abstract terms to describe it. It's hard to quantify, but, but there's truth. Like you say, it's this independent thing that can't be, um, I mean, you can, you can manipulate it any way you want. It's kind of like uh, if people do accounting, if you're an accountant, which I'm not, but there's there's ways to show the value of something and not in terms of dollars, but you can you can say, well, we paid for it last year and it was this and it was that. And, and they, they have ways of showing value of things, but you can't do that with cash. You can only say, okay, but I've only got $5 in my pocket and $5 is $5 is $5, right? And, and so in the end, the $5 is the absolute truth. Everything else we do may or may not be true. It's kind of like with the accountants again, that people say, well, how much does something cost? And they say, well, how much do you want it to cost? And the whole uh -huh. thing is because accountants have this way of manipulating, but you can't manipulate truth, right? Truth is what it is. Yeah. You can choose to believe it or not, right? You can, yes. Yeah. Well, let's read some what yeah. I believe to be truth. Yeah, no, I got it. I'm going to jump in only one time in this podcast because, you know, my mind goes here a lot when I see these Hebrew things anymore. I'm only going to mention it once and then we can go on. Don't, right? Corey, don't make promises. Okay. You can't well, keep. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, brother. That's true. Well, I'll, I'll sit on my hands. Uh, maybe I should close my scriptures too, but I got to point out one thing. So when we were together last time, 2 Nephi 6, 37, 38 is about where we left off. And, one of the things I've learned that the Hebrew poets who are these masterfully gifted writers, one of the things that was characteristic of their giftedness was when they would take a word that could be a noun and a verb and use it in the same sentence or in the same thought. And a common example is when Joseph in the book of Genesis tells his family, hey, I've dreamed a dream. Okay, so he dreams, that's the verb part. A dream is the noun part, and he uses the same word. And in English, it appears as the same word, you know, dream to dream. Well, in Hebrew, it does too. Um, now, I can't tell you what the Hebrew word is, but a lot of critics of Joseph Smith who accused plagiarism of the Book of Mormon say, well, Joseph Smith just copied, plagiarized out of the Bible, because look, it says, Lehi says, I've dreamed a dream. And so he just copied Joseph's words. Well, okay, you could say that, but I found hundreds of examples of other places where the verb noun, and I'm accumulating a list of these, they'll be on Restored Gospel soon, accumulating a list of these things. But one of the great examples is right here in the verse we're in. Now notice this, how many times in verse 36 to 37, don't ever be thrown off if a verse number breaks up a thought, because English American people made chapters and verses out of this. Hebrew poets didn't. I wish they had because then you would have collective thoughts. 36 and 37 is just one thought. But notice this where it says, where he's talking about this death passing, passing into life. He says, they must appear before the judgment seat of the Holy One of Israel, and then cometh the judgment, and then they must be judged according to the holy judgment of God. Now we got the same word judge in like two, two noun uses and two verb uses. And this is, it's really actually complex because most of us don't think in these terms. And I have a feeling Joseph Smith didn't, but when he says the judgment seat, well, that's the thing, that's the noun. Then cometh the judgment, that's the verb. They must be judged, verb, and then he says, according to the holy judgment of God. Now, noun. It's, it's not only doing the, the verb noun thing, it's doing it 
double times in the same thought and it's chiastic at the same time. Right. So, I mean, get, try to get your head around all that. Right. Right. It's like, that's why I said, I'll only bring this up once, but these things yet ring true because they're so clear. We're going to be judged. We're going to come before the judgment seat of Christ. Right. If we just take away that idea, that's enough. That's enough. But we get all these other internal proofs of the authenticity of this. It's like the language of itself bears record of the truth to mm-hmm. the way it's written. What do you think would happen if, if you could go through the day and, you know, every two minutes, every three minutes, your mind uh, focuses on, I'm going to come before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to be judged. There's going to be a final judgment. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the, I'm not trying to be silly, but think about how that would ground you and and determine how you respond to this world, how worked up you get, but also how much grace and mercy maybe you give to others. Mm. And I think oh, that's yeah. that's one um, why the Book of Mormon speaks so much on judgment and what happens to us after I, after we die, because we're told to be merciful and forgiving to others, so that the Lord can be merciful and forgiving forgiving to us. And and He says. And as we realize why we need that so much, we are going to need that one day, that mercy and that forgiveness to be placed upon us. So reminding ourselves that one day, I, I just, it's just so hard to go there, but to, to be this judgment bar, it's, it's descriptive. I don't know what it's going to look like, but this room with you in Christ and at that moment, you know that I mean, you either feel clean. Well, let's just read it. Yeah. That's this. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's so cool. You know, this whole, whole little phrase we like to end the podcast with. We're just walking each other home. That just, I think, what you just said summarizes this. We we got to look at each other with a lot of grace in in life because we're all these sinners. We're all going to stand before God someday, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, and we can't hide a thing at that point. You know, and I, I love this uh, where this is leading up to because, uh, again, now I'm not bringing up any more Hebrew parallelisms. You have to find them yourselves. But just notice the righteous will be righteous still and the filthy will be filthy still. You know, it's like that's the dividing line. Do you think there's anyone, Mike, who would stand before God with the confidence and assurance that they could look forward to judgment? Um. Well, I, th- I hope so. I think that's the calling for all, for all of us because that's the, that confidence is, is tied into the love that allows us to, to love others without, without having that confidence. I don't know that we can truly love others as God loves us. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad you answered that way. And it's not like I have the answer mm-hmm. and I'm not trying to be flippant about it because I, I know sometimes people take this, you know, almost of an arrogant attitude towards salvation, but I think he he's not trying to make this complex. That's why he says, hey, God's doing this in plainness. He's speaking to plainness. He's telling us that if our hearts change, there is an assurance of salvation. And that means that in the day of judgment, <clears throat> let's just say it this way, maybe looking forward to it is the wrong way, but that we don't have to fear the day of judgment. And maybe that's the, the better question, the better point to make. Do you, do you think we should fear the day of judgment? Um, would, would fearing it now motivate us to live our lives differently? Because, you know, some of, some of what I've had to retrain my mind in light of the book of Mormon's truth is that I don't think he's just 
putting on the balance scale, okay, I'm going to put all of Corey's good things he did on the left side of the scale and all the bad things he did on the right side, and then we're going to see which way the scale tips, you know. Because judgment doesn't come in to play like that. We sort of think it should maybe, but and maybe in some of our uh, influence from other scriptures or what we've heard about other scriptures, it, it tends to push us into thinking that way. But again, I think our works come back to this. Our works are not the thing that got us into heaven. Our works are the evidence that our heart changed. And if our heart changed, this whole message of Nephi, Isaiah, Jeremiah, everyone else, do the Book of Mormon Bible, whatever, is that if our hearts change, then mercy can be applied where the sin is removed. And this is what the Book of Mormon explains so much is that it's not just a list of, oh, I did these things good and I didn't do these things. And so, so some of that has made me feel fearful in earlier years of my life about judgment, thinking, well, he's going to judge me for this and that and the other. I don't have enough good to make up for that, you know? No, it's damaged us and as a culture and a church, I believe. I, I met a lady this week of a different culture, a different ethnicity than me. Uh, she was in some circumstances that um, she's raising her grandkids. She's adopted her grandkids uh, due to um, some things that happened where their mother couldn't be with them. And she was so joyful, Corey. She was. Uh, she has a brand new little baby she's taking care of. And I saw a picture on her wall. It was this giant picture of Jesus leaning over a baby. And I said to her, I said, I like that picture of Jesus with the little baby. And you know what she said? Mm. I start every day. She said, that's my starting point every day, and that's my ending point every day. <laughs> and people ask me, how can you do this? And you need to live your life. And she said, I had a good life, and this is living my life. And yeah. and they say, how do you do that? She says, because he gives me the strength. And that this, this is my starting point and my ending point every day, that big picture of Jesus holding a little baby That's, to me, someone who is already standing before that judgment seat and knowing that they're clean and joyful. It's not something that happens in the future, but she knew. And and to me, you can look and try to find A, B, C, and D, you know, through the scriptures and say, well, what about all of these things? Did she do all of these things? And I just say, I think she knows Christ in a way that I don't. She has a joy deep within her. And that's what I'm trying to find and put off the the things that aren't true that hold me from that, you know, that mm-hmm. culture and things we've been raised with. So, yeah. yeah, I absolutely believe that that's the plan for, for man, because look at how she's able to love on other people right, with, with strength that she shouldn't even have on her own due to her age and things. Right, right. You know, um, I've been having a conversation with a friend off and on over the last better than a year um, on the, the uh, another aspect of the subject. <clears throat> you know, you, you point out this woman who has this beautiful whole faith and uh, is not deterred by the world around her to, to see this is where I start and end my day. And this is no matter if, and it sounds like maybe she's had a lot of challenges too, like we all have in life too. It's not like it's just been a rose garden, but, what I love about the Book of Mormon is the assurances of salvation. I've been sharing these with a friend off and on because we've, I think, in the church, often felt like salvation was this thing we we have to beat ourselves up on and we can never know. We and and to say we can't know, and I've realized 
is to deny the pure, pure mercies of God as it's come through his word where he's saying, no, listen, I'm laying down my life for you. This is the way to do it. It's not complex. Do this and, and you'll and you'll enjoy this eternal life. You know, I think we do our very God a disservice by the attitude like that we maybe foster because we're just human. I don't know. But somehow in not being able to, I don't say arrogantly, but not be able to firmly believe that, no, like that woman, if I start and end my day, I can have the assurance of salvation. I, I'm calling on God the best I know how. Mm-hmm. I'm not deceitful in my heart, right? You know what's crazy is, uh, so as far as we talked about the family of God, let me talk about the differences we have. We have uh, apparently where she lives, we have a different um, economic difference. We have a different culture. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd just say it. she's black. I'm white. Mm-hmm. Um, raised with different life experiences. Uh, I don't know politics wise what what side she's on. That, but the thing is, within moments of being in her presence, and not only that, but well, within moments of being in her presence. That's who I felt a kinship to. And I think that's what the family of God yeah. means. I could care less the color of her skin, yeah. uh, but being around the little ones and her and the spirit within her is is uh, the kinship more so than any political party postings on the internet or anything. Uh, those aren't the family of God is those that love Jesus and know him. And I just felt like that was, that was my family. And that's what I picture the type of people I want to be around someday. And I want to be that type of person someday. Exactly. Exactly. To others. What was the statistic you shared a couple of podcasts back about the, what's the demographic of the typical Christian right now in the world? Yeah. Uh, poor, um, probably in a shanty town or, uh, a woman walking to get water without, you know, electricity mm. that's, that's there 100% of the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's, that is the face of Christianity uh, in the next right now, Looking going on, the world the five, level. on a world level. Yeah. That's the typical Christian. Wow. Living without electricity in a, in a shanty. That's, that's the majority of people coming to Christ in that culture. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. I love it when those walls come down. I, I probably shared this before and I, I don't share this to puff myself up, but it, it was one of those moments where I felt it too. I used to work on the other side of town and drove typically on the highway, but now and then if there'd be wrecks on the highway, I would divert off and, and take some neighborhood routes to get to work on time. And it was one of these mornings where it's like I needed to get to work on time like we all do. And as I was, there was a wreck on the highway, I got off and I went through some neighborhoods that <clears throat> took me in a the part of town where, um, you know, for some people it's like, they just don't want to go there, uh, for whatever reasons. And, you know, it wasn't maybe the safest part of town, but there was a, a car stopped and blinkers flashing and something in my head said, just stop and see if you can help. So I, I did. And it was a, a woman, not a whole lot older than me, but she was, I don't know, she could have been a, a grandmother, but nevertheless, she had a flat tire and I, hate, I had to get to work. But I thought, but she's stranded. There's a human being stranded out here. My my company will forgive me. You know, I can I can come in. You know, a different time. It won't. It I won't lose any. There won't be any issues at work. But anyhow, I stopped and I asked if I could help. And this woman had a flat tire, and I changed her tire. And when this twenty minutes was over, 
she, she thanked me profusely, but she said, I just need to ask, why did you stop? And, you know, at first I was thinking, maybe she was thinking, you know, the bad part of town, you know, and, and it, like you, it was like, we, we weren't both, you know, white people in the comfortable part of Lee's summit here. And, um, I, the only thought that came to me in the moment is I said, well, if my mom had been stranded by the side of the road, I would have hoped that someone would have helped her too. And at that, she starts crying and she's, she, then she reaches in her trunk and I can't remember if she was Jehovah's Witness or something, starts giving me all these tracts from her church and everything. It was like, you know, it was just one of the things she wanted to do. But, but, you know, in the end, that's what has to, those are the barriers that we have to put down. And I'm not just talking about race, but everything we have to realize that we're all created in God's image, whether we agree with someone politically or not, or we share the same culture. And, and those are the things that I, I love the scripture that says someday we'll all see eye to eye and implies that whatever barriers separated us at this point in our life will be gone someday. And we'll just see ourselves as children of Christ, you know, Mm -hmm. eye to eye that that's the, it's the great equalizer, this judgment bar of Christ um, where the righteous and the wicked are separated. And that's what separates us. Uh, Let's, let's read on here. Uh, So we, we read up to, um, what's going to happen? It says, those that are righteous shall be righteous still, verse 38, and they which are filthy shall be filthy still. Wherefore, they which are filthy are the devil and his angels, and they go away into everlasting fire prepared for them. And their torment is a lake of fire and brimstone, whose flames ascendeth up forever and ever, and hath no end. That's... That parallel, Corey, the righteous shall be righteous still. The filthy shall be filthy still. And I'm honestly asking, is there any way to understand that, to say that you can be righteous, but but maybe more righteous or less righteous, um, so as to have a different reward when you die, when you're standing at that judgment bar? I tell you what. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. I know, I know who you are, so you're going to find out what it's like to be in fire of brimstone that goes up forever and ever, right, if you're the devil's advocate. No. <laughs> this, uh, the rest of the scriptures, I think, beautifully answer that question. This is what we have to ask ourselves as saints. In fact, I'm going to pose it this way. This, this scripture tells the answer, and I'm going to play a little bit devil's advocate back, but, but I want to answer the question too. Mark Twain once quipped, he said, the person who has good books and yet does not read them little differentiates himself from the man who cannot read. You think about that. You know, it's like if, hey, if there's good books available to us, but we choose never to read them, how different are we from someone who's illiterate? Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it's like we won't take knowledge in. Where I want to go with this, and and this <laughs> this is one of these thoughts I had when I was taking a walk, and I had to get home and write it down because. Comparing it to the Book of Mormon, how different is it for someone who rejects the Book of Mormon and therefore will not read it, could be some in the world, versus someone who has the Book of Mormon and yet won't accept what it says? Mm. That's Think about that for a minute, because there are a lot of us in this life who, because we think we've been influenced by other scriptures, which we believe trump this idea— we have to remember this word was the standard, you know, this second Nephi 11, I think 44, it says, my words in this book will hiss forth as a standard to the world. And this, what we've got to 
ask ourselves pretty honestly is, are we willing to accept this word that came to us that's supposedly unblemished to us and accept what it has to say? And if we don't, how much different are we from people who reject the book wholeheartedly and have never read it? That's a great, that's a great point. And I, and um, I bring this up and I'm going to bring it up every con- every time that I see something like this pointed out in the book. And I know we've touched on it many times and done series on it many, you know, in different ways, but we need to keep bringing this up because it is, uh, I think, a damaging culture that teaches us otherwise. The righteous, it says, shall be righteous still. That righteousness is is the righteousness that's that's put upon us. That's, that's Jesus' righteousness. It's his blood that cleanses us. We did a whole podcast on that, this, the grape juice and the white carpet. It's mm-hmm. his blood that cleanses us, not our own righteousness. And that's the righteousness. And so if it's his blood that's cleansing us, is his blood partly dirty and partly unrighteous? That's, is he incapable of completely removing our sin and bringing us back into your presence? Leaving us partially stained. And so yeah. this is just one of those scriptures, 2 Nephi 6, 38, the righteous shall be righteous still, and they which are filthy shall be filthy still. There's so No in between. And notice the things that don't pass away. In verse 38, he says, his eternal word, which cannot pass away. And then notice that it's a contrast, the lake of fire, its flames go up forever, and they have no end. In other words, the the judgment of God, this is this is part of what the Hebrews' mind was. They saw everything as one. And the parallel that God teaches is if there's an eternity that's going to last forever, there's got to be a punishment that lasts forever too. The, the, the two, the opposition in all things, they have to balance. And so God's word will go on forever, and this punishment can go on forever. But notice, and here's coming back to your question, Mike. Verse 42, I believe, answers it. And and I just want to read this because, even though we might jump back for a second, because this is the plain answer. And notice how beautiful and concise it is. But behold, the righteousness of the saints, of the Holy One of Israel, they which have believed in the Holy One of Israel, they which have endured the crosses of the world and despised the shame of it, They shall inherit the kingdom of God, which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world, and their joy shall be full forever. Period. Is this referring back to verse 38, the same group? They which are righteous are righteous still. And so it says, behold the righteous, the saints of the Holy One of Israel. Yes, so notice notice how this is set up. And I said I wasn't going to talk parallelisms, but this this is a... I won't use the word parallelism, but just notice in the sh- in the shorter part of 38, the righteous shall be righteous still, the filthy shall be filthy still. And then starting in 39 through 41, he's describing the unright the filthy. The filthy. The filthy are the devils and his angels, the everlasting uh. fire, the torment, and then how God's going to execute his words, and they must be fulfilled. That's, again, back to 38, how he can't pass away. But then he contrasts it in 42 and 43, and he, he compares both of these. So, so 40 through 40, 39 through 41 is a description of the filthy. 42 through 43 or 44 is a description of the holy, the righteous. And so now he's expanding on both of these. It's called emblematic parallelism, but I didn't, I wasn't going to bring that up because I told you I'm not going to talk about it anymore. But notice 
this is a total contrast. The, the evil, the, the, the filthy, rather, go into this everlasting fire prepared for them in verse 40. In the righteous, if you look in 42, they inherit the kingdom of God and go there. And it says their joy shall be full forever. Um, the, the lake of fire, you know, ascends up the flames forever and ever. But the righteous, their joy goes on forever and ever. Um, and both of those are under this umbrella of, he says, oh, the greatness of our God. They're both part of God's plan. They're on this parallel. So, so he introduces the thought of the filthy and the righteous in 38, and then the rest of those verses, the next six or eight, describe the two groups. You're either righteous forever or you're going to be filthy forever. But, but, but the answer to your question comes back to this. He puts it in these terms. The saints, they believed in the Holy One of Israel. They endured the crosses of the world. Now, maybe we should break that down at some point and despised the shame of it. They shall inherit the kingdom of God, which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world. That despised the shame of it seems like a double negative to me. They, they, um, basically they hated, you know, being embarrassed about it or they hated, uh, not wanting to mention it. In other words, despising the shame of the cross means they they love to um focus on the cross right not yeah. feeling shameful they don't want they despised being embarrassed by it they despised it's, being it's um, like to heck with shame i'm going forward right? yeah yeah exactly exactly i'm not gonna hide this this cross this jesus uh this great plan. I, I got to throw this out because it was so touching. I, I was at a Christian conference a year or so ago, and uh, people were talking about problems they'd have in their family with their children and different things. And a man stands up and he's, he's telling his family story. And he says, you know, uh, he talked about his struggle with pornography and, and his, he talked about it so openly and so just freely. And then he finally said, and the reason I can talk about this so openly and easily is he said, because my sin and my shame has been nailed to the cross with Jesus of this. And he, and he you know, I thought of the scripture, despising the shame of it, mm. you know, how it's like, hey, I'm a sinner. I confess. It's It could be embarrassing, but you know what? I'm not going to let my embarrassment prevent me from confessing so that I can experience God's healing power, right, in, in, in overcoming. And that was the rest of his story. Yeah, that— the um, the promise to these righteous is this: they shall inherit the kingdom of God, which was prepared for them from the foundation of the of the world, and their joy shall be full forever. So, inheriting the kingdom of God uh, equals joy forever full, and that kingdom of God and that joy that's forever full. Um, again, um, I don't imagine that you would have forever full joy being apart from God somehow in his kingdom mm -hmm. or being apart from the father or being apart from the son yet somehow in his kingdom that your joy would be full. And that's kind of where, um, that's just something to, to ponder on again, as we talk about this judgment and this plan, you know, there's a something else that jumped out at me and this is one of the helps of scripture searching, I suppose. 
but I didn't find it scripture searching. It's easy to find now with scripture search, but I was reading this passage this summer because Second Nephi 6 is something that, I uh, remember when we had the, uh, you and I both uh, were teaching the interns and then we were talking about parallelism. So we spent an hour or two going through parallelisms. You were teaching the interns. You, you were, you were the scripture you. boy. No. You, were, you, were on the, you were on the PowerPoint highlighting as we were finding stuff. And Mike, we were tag team. Just don't want credit for something I no, didn't No, you were there. All right. So, but we use this whole passage of Second Nephi 6 as an example for parallelism. Mm. We, we couldn't have enough podcasts to bring them all out. I would encourage anyone, hey, start, just highlight the parallel ideas. You'll see them light, dark, filthy, righteous, all these things. And the meanings jump out at you. But one of the things that becomes a little harder to see when parallels exist that are several verses apart. This is where reading and rereading help. And you'll never find it if all you do is scripture search. You'll start to see these things when you're reading context. I would always encourage people to keep opening your scriptures, your your physical scriptures, and just just read them. There's there's comfort there, but there's learning. And here's one of them. This word despise, which you read, it appears in verse uh, 42 of chapter 6, 2 Nephi 6. Well, so, and if you're Using uh, the LDS version, you could uh, find the same at Second Nephi chapter nine verse eighteen. But notice how it says, "They which endure the cross of the world and despise the shame of it, they inherit the kingdom of God." Well, jumping ahead to verse sixty-two, and we won't skip to all the scriptures in the middle. I just want to point this out. He then is talking about the rich, the people who have been overcome, and he said, "They despise the poor." and the persecute the meek, and their hearts are on their treasures. Uses the same word despise, but now it's talking about the attitude of people toward each other. The first group is the righteous who despise the shame of the cross and moved on. The the people in the second group are those who despise the poor, but there's a parallel going on, and it's not resolved until verse 83. He says, Whoso knocketh to him will he open, and the wise and the learned and the rich and those who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom and their riches, yea, they are they who he despiseth. Mm. So all of a sudden we get this parallelism on despising. We have the righteous who despise any shame associated with being Christian, and they're like, I'm going to be Christian anyhow. We get the rich and the people puffed up in their own learning and their own goods who then despise other people. And then God wraps it all up and says, oh, yeah, those who despise the others, those are the ones who I despise, right? Now, using that in a, in a sense of eternal judgment, right? That's what it would mean. Mm. But isn't that something? You know, we get these parallels built upon parallels, but there's, there's deep meaning there and, and, and how it's all just contained in this single scripture that's, that's uh, explained so clearly. Well, talking about this complete um, act of God to save the righteous. Look at 43 says, Oh, the, Oh, the greatness of the mercy of our God, the Holy one of Israel, mm-hmm. which is Christ as we've learned for he delivereth his saints from that awful monster, the devil and death and hell and that lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. Oh, how great the holiness of our God for he knoweth all things, and there is not anything save he knows it. And he cometh into the world that he may save all men, if they will hearken unto his voice. So we're talking about mercy of our God and salvation of all men, if they will hearken. That's a, a completeness. 
That's a complete salvation. That's like so you could say, and I'm always taking this from the vantage point of that we're going to live out our eternity somewhere uh, saved, but not in the presence of the Father, or saved, but not in the presence of the Son. You know, saved, but in the presence of angels. Um, you have to then kind of hack away at this mercy of God, and that is say, well, it's it's a partial mercy. It's it's somewhat of a mercy, like. Like if a judge said, I'm going to be merciful unto you and suspend your 100-year sentence and we'll give you an 80 sentence. Well, that's not really, that's mercy. That's yeah. not really mercy. Yeah. Um, so God's mercy, I would uh, think, if if everything I read about him is a complete, complete mercy um, that delivers me from the awful monster of death and hell. But also it says that he saves all men that will hearken to him. Saves all men that will hearken unto him. The Book of Mormon says he will save all who call upon him, and we we have to believe call means you know with, with an authentic heart, not. But but exactly, there's so much mercy in the Book of Mormon that to me is the overriding theme that we have deprived ourselves from as his saints. This gets back to the hey, you can you can reject the Book of Mormon and never read it, but what happens if you have it and then you don't accept its words? This this is. It's why even this whole topic, what the Book of Mormon teaches, when I get it online someday, the whole first message, I think, of the Book of Mormon is God's mercy that is so abundantly clear through this that he's delivering the saints from the awful monster, right? The holiness of our God is doing that. That Mark Twain quote, what you said, you know, what good is it to have the Book of Mormon if you don't believe what it says? Yeah. Yes, some reject it. What happens if we have it and don't accept it? You know, that's mm-hmm. that's that's the judgment on the Gentiles too. Is that's why there's judgment both ways for the people. As Third Nephi seven discusses, I can feel my start, myself starting to talk quickly because I get excited about these things when the scriptures have explained them to us already. Points we may have missed. Third Nephi seven is Jesus' words describing two groups of people among the Gentiles: those who believed and those who didn't. But the judgment is upon all, and we get these the judgment about people who reject the Messiah, and then we get this judgment on people who maybe accepted who he was, but then didn't accept his word. You know, it's judgment. And but, but you read it, Mike. This well, you, this whole I was just going to say, he cometh unto the world, verse forty five, that he might save all men if they will hearken unto his voice. Right. Yeah, and so that's not. I'm not saving that that's just that, that, you know, all men are saved, but that's, that was his purpose. It, his purpose wasn't to, to come into the world to give all men uh, an eternity of what they'll be comfortable with. That's, that's not a salvation really. No. And then you also, along the lines of that, that quote from, from Mark Twain was a couple of times, a couple of podcasts back when you read out of the doctrine and covenants where it says they were, the church was under condemnation for already, rejecting the Book of Mormon. In other words, they 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 had the book, but they weren't uh, reading what it said. Yes. They had the book, but they weren't. I, I, I got to jump in on that, Mike, because I just had this thought as you were saying this. We've got to remember what we quote from. And among especially conservative circles where we kind of tend to hang out, 
Um, not me all the time, believe it or not, but I, I hold to the words the scriptures say, but I, I, I'm, <laughs> some people might say I'm, I'm too liberal for the conservatives and I'm too conservative for the liberals. So I don't know. It just puts me in my, my own little world, but I just, I just want to understand what the word says. And, and for, for that reason alone, it, it can alienate, but this is what I've, this is what I've come to observe. Not everyone in the 1800s who ever had a sermon written down or even wrote a book necessarily understood the word any better just because they lived in the days when Joseph Smith was alive. Now, I'm not discrediting that, all right? right. That must be powerful. But the reason I'm saying this is for twofold. Sometimes I'll hear like, well, people say, yeah, but it says in the lectures on faith or something like that. And, I, and I'm not trying to bash that that book. I'm not trying to... but. But yet I can find elements where people are sharing ideas that are not always coming back to this plain word. And then at that, I got a question. Well, so what was the source of their information if they said this? And I'm not trying to pick a fight with anything. But but what I do want to pick a fight with is um, at the same time, there have been people more in our generation. One uh, apostle who I won't even mention by name, but most people probably know if I just say, yeah, you can find a lot of tapes hearing amazing sermons and amazing experiences. Well, I heard once in one of these, and, and again, I'm not trying to bash a person. I'm just trying to say, bring all the ideas back and compare it to Scripture, no matter who uttered them, no matter if I utter them or, or we utter it on a podcast. Or, yeah, or age of God. Yeah, they, right. Well, so here's the statement, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because of what happens in the next next couple of verses. There's a statement of someone, and it's on a lot of tapes you can hear. The person gets quoted a lot at conservative uh, worships, and the man's passed on now, but he, he makes this statement that he saw um, Christ's crucifixion, and then, I can't quote it exactly, but then he kind of quips. He says, speaking of the physical pain, he says, which I doubt he felt. Okay, now, I've heard that more than once, and I've heard some people then say, oh, well, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't feel anything. It wasn't any big deal to him. You know, he, he could tough that out. I'm sorry, but the scriptures totally present God in this different light. One, that it was God who took on flesh, but n- notice. Verse 46. Yeah, go ahead and read it, because that's the one I was, I was looking at. Behold, he suffereth the pains of all men, yea, the pains of every living creature, both men and women and children, which belong to the family of Adam. He suffereth this that the resurrection might pass upon all men, that all might stand before him at the great judgment day. And I'm going to couple this with King Benjamin's sermon in Mosiah 1. So he suffers the pain of all men, but this is what King Benjamin said, starting at uh, Mosiah chapter 1, verse 98. He'll walk among men, working mighty miracles, such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight, curing all manner of diseases. He'll cast out devils or the evil spirits which dwelleth in the hearts of the children of men. But it says, and lo, lo means now look here, he will suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer except it be unto death. You know, when it says he was acquainted with grief, you know, out of Isaiah, this expounds on that, that no, Jesus was tempted more than you and I have ever been tempted to, in, in many, you know, whether it was, you know, lying or deceiving or sexual temptations or anything that we're subject to because of our flesh. 
he he had it more he pain of body hunger and thirst and fatigue the the idea we get of jesus is yeah he was god in the flesh but maybe he was never uh, afflicted with anything until the cross i was reading something that translates some of the words of isaiah into modern from the hebrew into modern understandable where even the rabbis are saying whoever this is they won't say it's jesus but it says no he didn't just like say oh he took our sicknesses and then like obliterated them they're saying no he he knew what it felt like to be sick you know he knew what it felt like to have a disease and if we could actually see the life of christ from birth to death that we'll see someone who probably knew what it was like to have the flu and everything else like we did and feel really bad physically and this is my point getting back to this comment that there are things people say that misrepresents sometimes Jesus, the nature of Jesus. And I'm sure whoever this was has had 10,000 times more insight, you know, on, on many other things, which we can all learn from. But, but we have to be careful in everything we do to bring it back to the actual word of God and don't paint a picture of someone else's interpretation, especially regarding, for instance, life after death, which your comments before on, hey, we'll be saved, will be better than what we could have. You know, obviously the Book of Mormon doesn't teach that at all. We're either righteous or we're going to be filthy. Mm-hmm. But I, but I, but I think too on Jesus, just looking at him, he he must have known what awful pain felt feels like before the day of the cross. The thing that he was acquainted with grief—that's what uh, gets me, because as you and I both know, I mean, both of us have had grief in our life, but for to be the God, to be the Creator, and to see people reject truth and a way of life that you know is going to bring them eternal life must cause knowing the punishment and, and knowing the alternative that grief it's the more you know the more <laughs> that grief has to be at a level that would consume me mm-hmm. and then to think that the very creator of the world wept and said oh how often i would have gathered you like mm. a hen gathers her chicks, mm. Mm. to to think that he was weeping, or or that his grief was so great that somehow this this weird manifestation that he he wept drops of blood, I I don't know how all that works together, but his grief to be able to still uh, hold up under that is something to me. Yeah, yeah. How could remain true to that cause when it's like you know what it's like? It's like when you just want to give in. I mean, it's just, wow. And and that all translates back somehow to great love for us, that his love could be so strong that he would go undeterred. Well, so he, he suffereth that the resurrection might pass upon all men, that all will stand before him the great and judgment day, and he commands all men that they must repent, be baptized in his name, having perfect faith in the Holy One of Israel, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. And if they will not repent and believe in his name and be baptized in his name and endure to the end, they must be damned. For the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has spoken it. So, Corey, uh, what happens to so this? What happens to those that um, have died that weren't baptized? Well, the Book of Mormon gives the beautiful explanation of this. And this is part of the fullness of the gospel yeah, that, is. That, that is that does offer hope. 
when I, presented like this. It is. It is. And, and first, I got to say, so how much time do you think we have left? Uh, <laughs> maybe 10 minutes. All right. We, we're going to touch on this. And I have a feeling there will be another podcast that, that expands this because you're asking a beautiful question. And the Book of Mormon explains this more clearly. You know, we, we can we can read this and we can see the debate that's gone on forever between different factions of Christianity and why the debate continues there, but we don't realize what beautiful truth we have. Some people would say, the, the, you know, here's a, here's a bold scripture. Hey, you're baptized, you're in God's kingdom. You're not baptized, you're damned. And so, pretty bold. Well, I'm baptized. I went to a, a man's funeral. He was a relative on my wife's side. And um, the minister who was uh, doing this, uh, the eulogy, uh, she happened to be telling a little bit of his life story, and she didn't actually know him that well, but she she did. But she said, but we, we have, his name is Walter, Uncle Walt. But we know that Walt is in, uh, saved because he was baptized when he was an infant. You know, she mentions this because that was part of the faith. And she was she was the minister at this church where he attended. Uh, it wasn't RLDS or not that even matters or whatever. It was just in, in that uh, belief, in that denomination. And I listened to that, and I thought, for some reason, for that minister, that seemed to signify that, well, because he was baptized as a, as a child, that he's assured in. And there's a lot of people that would look at it that way. That's why, as I'm looking on Ancestry.com, trying to understand some of my roots, the main record from the 15, 16, 17, 1800s is usually a baptismal record. They don't always know the day someone was born or died, but a lot of churches wrote down, you know, Corey Stark was baptized, you know, if, if I was an infant, you know, three days after his birth on this day in 1542 or whatever, you know. And so they were very, very particular to write that down because that was a huge deal. Didn't always know the day someone died, right, unless they were famous. But, but you knew when they were baptized. And so the world has looked at this as like, well, I did the physical thing. Now, this brings up the great debate in our day now where you get people say, no, no work saves you. And they classify baptism as a quote work and you don't have to do any works. You're just saved if you believe. So I don't need to be baptized. And so you get this debate. Well, is it a work or is it not? Here's where the book of Mormon answers those questions. And like I said, we could probably take a whole session and we probably should to, to go into some of these scriptures on it because I think it clarifies. But let me give, and this is just from recent study. This is actually for preparation from class because I was wondering the same thing. How do you answer the question? Well, do you need to be baptized or not? I just, the reason I ask that is because I know we're, we're good at taking a scripture like this and building a whole life philosophy and, and the, theology around it. And um, that's why I wanted to point out, yes, indeed, this scripture certainly does say you have to repent and believe in his name and be baptized and endure to the end or you'll be damned. Right. And so what we have to realize is what when the Nephites wrote this, what were they teaching baptism was or is? And what and, and there are several scriptures on this, but I'm just going to summarize them now without getting deep into each one of them, because I think we'll have time for it the next time. Nephi writes this. These are his closing words. He talks about baptism, and he says, Baptism is a witness that you want to be obedient to the commandments of God. Second Nephi chapter 13, verse 9, if you're in the RLDS, if you go LDS, it's uh, Second Nephi verse, uh, chapter 31, verse 7. 
it's talking about baptism, but it's talking about Jesus' baptism. And it says this, it says, don't you know that Jesus was holy? And he says, but notwithstanding he being holy, he shows, and now there words holy without sin. They're saying, don't you know that Jesus didn't have any sins? So, but he says, the lamb of God did fulfill all righteousness in being baptized by water. Don't you know he was holy, but notwithstanding he being holy, he shows to the children of men that according to the flesh, so that's a lot right there. Uh, even though he was holy and from heaven without sin, even though he was God in the flesh, he's shown to the children of men that according to the flesh, he humbles himself before the Father and witnesses that he would be obedient to him in keeping his commandments. So so what is baptism? Is it just, well, I was dunked underwater and therefore I'm saved? No, baptism is simply a physical thing you do, like when you exchange rings with your wife on a mm-hmm. on the on the altar, right? You're back to that word "willing" that we yes, talked about yes, last time. That's your intention, exactly. desire. Oh, beautiful point! Beautiful point. See, this is the this is the point. This is the positive aspect of, of the change of heart. My my witness of baptism isn't just that I was physically baptized. My witness of baptism is that spiritually, I came to the point in my life where I said, "Lord, I'm willing to follow you. I'm willing to follow you." And the baptism is just kind of like putting. The, the ring on your finger, mm-hmm. right? But your vows were what you, the expression of your heart is, right? This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to be for you. And and the ring seals that, right? But it isn't just that you wear your ring that you made, that you're married. It's that you you exchange this covenant yeah. and, and commitment. I wonder if this is ties in with, uh, as we've talked about, the Hebrew way of looking at a word and us. Like when we look at baptized, like I have a picture of uh, a man in a white shirt laying a, a young eight-year-old under the water and bringing them back up. Exactly. But to them, it was more of a, a lifestyle of following. It, it means you're willing to follow. Because, exactly. But we, we do. We look at words like that, and we, we we picture an action in a point in time, you know, that, that's usually photographed, and the bap, that's what baptism is. So there's a word that comes out in the Scripture, too. I'm not going to get off baptism. I just want to mention it also says we have to have in 48 perfect faith in the holy one of israel well it's like we look at that word and if we if we base that on what we think in english well we're all sunk right because which of us has perfect faith right who, who, who do you know who goes around saying i have perfect faith in the holy one of israel well this again it helps to understand in the in the hebrew the word perfect now it could have been translated this way i suppose in the book of mormon for us but to the hebrew they use the word perfect a lot it, it you see it in Matthew and, and Mark too, but perfect meant complete, and complete means to be whole, or like to wholly do something or completely do something. The Book of Mormon beautifully says, "Hey, unless we have to have to wholly rely on the merits of Jesus Christ, right? Wholly rely. In other words, we we aren't looking to ourselves for any salvation or any other source of salvation. To be whole and complete is what they." the word perfect meant in the Hebrew. And these are people of the Hebrew mindset writing this. And so when they're saying, hey, you have to have perfect faith, I, I'm not trying to say there's a loophole. It just has a greater meaning. You have to have complete and whole faith that salvation is through Christ. Well, baptism is representing, it's simply the physical outlying thing we do, uh, the testimony, I suppose, of the spiritual change that we believe has happened in our heart, that we want to wholly rely on God. 
for salvation. And so, like you say, it's one of these words that I think we, we have this image in our mind, and some of us gravitate towards, well, like the minister at that church, he was physically baptized when he was an infant. But when he was an infant, did he come to this decision that I want to wholly and completely rely on God for salvation? Of course not. And, and so this gets back to why the Book of Mormon beautifully talks about how infinite baptism is, is this thing that is detestable because baptism has to be done because of the conscious desire of us. And that's why it's, it's, it's just uh, mocking God to think a child has to be baptized when the baptism isn't about the thing that happened to you in water, like Uncle Walt. The baptism is when your heart says, I want to completely rely on God. Yeah. And I knew uh, coming up, we're going to talk about this. We probably it's a great place to break, but we're going to talk about how when there's no law given, there's no punishment, and no condemnation. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also, that just takes us back to that great quote. Uh, you know, Mark Twain: If you do have the law and you do have the instruction, and you choose not to obey it or choose not to read it, then you're uh, or accept it. Yeah. You can read it and decide it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, I exactly. That's what it comes down to. You know, it's like I. I I, I, I want to keep pointing this out every session because this Holy One of Israel is the God who took on flesh for us. Now, we can say it doesn't exist, but that's exactly what this message is because Jesus wants us home with him, right? And he did everything to lay down his life for those who would call upon his name. Well, what uh, we'll pick up here next time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it's It's been good, brother. Thank you. You better say it this time. No, your your turn. You're not doing it. You're not doing it? All right. Hey, guys, keep walking each other home. And walk Mike home. He'll never say it, but I'll say it.